Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute with another Democracy Sausage episode, zeroing in on the 150th such episode, in fact. This podcast comes to you with the support of the Crawford School of Public Policy and the School of Politics and International Relations. Now... We're called Democracy Sausage, and this episode is going to be primarily focusing on, I guess you'd say, the democratisation of energy. And to do that, do that, I'm speaking with the Indy from Indi, Dr Helen Haynes, independent MP for the Victorian seat of Indi, the same federal seat Cathy McGowan rested off the Liberals a few terms ago, which was amazing enough, but Dr Haynes then did something perhaps even more groundbreaking, that is, she kept the seat in independent hands when she succeeded Cathy McGowan at the last election in 2019. In her short time in Canberra, Dr Haynes has championed regional Australia and I think broken the stereotype that rural and regional voters are all inherently conservative. Last year, she unveiled a community energy regional plan with the immodest aim, among other things, of 10,000 local power stations. And I'd like to know a lot more about that plan. Helen, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you. Thanks for making time for us in this busy sitting week. Uh, Tell us, uh, if you would, just in sort of broad terms about the community energy plan. What is it? Uh, There are people who who won't know much about it. So if you could just give us a sketch of uh, the broad philosophy of your plan. So fundamentally, it's a regional development plan. Uh, Right now, we know that around 25% of all renewable energy, of all energy is coming from renewables in Australia. And the government's own agency, AEMO, tell us that within 40 years, that'll be between 80 and 100%. So that's fantastic news. The thing is that uh, all of that power being uh, created through renewable energy will be created in the regions. And right now, 
uh, the regions aren't seeing great profits from that. And I want to change that. I really want to make sure that for every electron that's generated in regional Australia, that money comes back to us. Uh, and uh, my plan is one that I've put together with uh, a whole lot of regional Australians, uh, primarily a lot of them in my electorate, whereby we have uh, quite a lot of experts in the area of community-owned renewable projects. So that's what I'm aiming to do is to switch switch things around and make sure that the profits do return to Australia. So it's got three planks, which I can explain to you if you like. Yeah, sure. So the concept of 10,000 power plants operating right around the nation is is about thinking uh, around a distributed energy network. Of course, the old uh, coal-fired uh, power stations uh, were situated in uh, in a spot and then we had poles and wires generating uh, or bringing that electricity out to homes and businesses right around the nation. So this is flipping that idea and saying that we should be generating energy closer to the source, which is, of course, what we do with renewable energy. Yeah, so if we think about the way it's been designed up until now, we've had places like the Hunter Valley or Latrobe Valley in Victoria um, and huge huge uh, coal-fired power plants there close to where the coal is, not close necessarily to where the populations are, and then massive uh, electricity transmission infrastructure to get that power from those power stations to urban and regional centres. Uh, you're saying this offers us an opportunity to do to flip that around and, and, and have it much more local. That's exactly right, and that's where the idea of 10,000 local power stations comes from. Uh, we know that we waste a lot of energy when it's transferred along the wires, uh, so if, in fact, energy is, is generated closer to where we need it, then we, we solve part of that problem. We solve part of that problem about grid reliability too. But importantly, uh, what's happening right now is that uh, large companies, uh, often large corporates, some of them foreign-owned, are uh, coming into regional Australia and um, and setting up large renewable projects, large wind and solar primarily, but in, in the future that will be hydrogen too. And local communities are sometimes hostile to, uh, to these projects appearing in their town and they're hostile because the profits aren't shared essentially. Um, so, Right now, uh, for example, in, in Germany, 10% of all renewable energy plants are owned by farmers. An additional 30% is owned by local communities. So what I'm suggesting in my plan, that when it comes to large-scale renewable energy projects, those great big wind and solar, uh, that there should be an offer made to local communities to co-invest with that and to share some of the profits. And I'm suggesting that that should be an offer of 20%. That way we don't see uh, just perhaps one farmer who's lucky enough to uh, to have the land where the wind turbines go seeing some profit. Uh, it's an opportunity for other people to see profit too. So that's at the large scale. At mid-scale, there's not much happening in mid-scale energy generation. And, uh, again, uh, the government have a program called the underwriting, the UNGI program, which underwrites uh, large-scale renewable energy. I'm suggesting they do something with mid-scale, underwrite mid-scale, whereby local uh, governments, local communities who own 51% of a mid-scale project can get underwriting from the government to support uh, the creation of, of that level uh, of, 
of renewable energy projects. And then the third component is to establish 50 community hubs around the nation, and I'm suggesting in the renewable energy zones. And those hubs would provide the technical expertise uh, to support local communities to get right on board with renewables, to make sure that every school, every hospital, every public housing um, building has access to solar panels uh, and potentially community batteries, microgrids and so on. In my electorate, uh, we had uh, a significant impact from the Black Summer bushfires. One town, Corriong in northeast Victoria, was cut off from power for a couple of weeks. I've been successful in working with that community and with government to get a $3 million grant to set up a microgrid uh, and a community battery to make sure that should such an event happen again, uh, that they can be islandable, that they can maintain a, an energy source. Uh, we've got other projects running in Indi and Yakandanda and Euroa doing similar things. So that third plank, the community energy hubs, would enable those kind of projects to get off the ground and be sustained. Yeah, so we're talking, you mentioned grid stability, for example, that that could be enhanced by this. And I suppose what you're saying there, if I'm reading between the lines, is that if you've got all this distributed power, as they say, you know, the, the generation is distributed around, uh, around the community, around the market, around the nation, uh, then you don't, even when you have problems with one part of the grid, you don't have the whole grid going out for a start, which is the sort of calamity we saw in South Australia and I think it was 2016 and and uh, mm. we've seen other, you know, very significant blackouts and around the world, of course, Texas quite recently uh, for, for, for quite different reasons. Um, so there's stability that comes from having all of this localised generation, but there's also resilience that comes presumably, as you say, for those uh, communities that might find themselves cut off in times of uh, extreme weather events or, uh, or bushfires, for example, as you were saying there. Mm, absolutely, Mark. And, uh, you know, right now in, in that in that same town of Coriong, they're at the edge of the grid and their electricity is so unstable that uh, a young woman I met up there recently who'd just moved back to the region after being away for some years told me that her mother said, don't forget to pack a candle and, uh, and a torch because the power still goes off on a daily basis. Um, so this is what many, many rural communities live with. Uh, there's other really terrific examples. Um, there's uh, uh, Aboriginal communities who could really benefit from this, uh, who are, you know, paying large sums of money for diesel uh, generators to get power. Uh, this kind of project, this kind of plan uh, would set them up in a way that they could have energy security as well. Uh, and there's towns already doing this, particularly around that mid-scale um, level of, of generation. There's a town in Western Australia, Denmark, where the community came together and purchased a couple of wind turbines uh, so they're not only only generating uh, energy for their for their town, uh, but they're getting profits from it as well. Right, and I believe you've got some in your electorate. You mentioned Yakandanda before that uh, has uh, innovative projects going on there. Can you talk about that? Yes. So um, Yakandanda is the little town that could, and uh, some years ago it determined that it wanted to be totally renewable by 2022, and uh, it will achieve that. So that town's been working diligently around uh, fostering um, literacy around uh, renewable energy and how energy works more broadly. There's a microgrid set up in that town and uh, they're working now towards a community battery. They've also got other projects uh, up their sleeve. They're working on a hydro scheme 
And uh, in the last few years, they came together and uh, developed a social enterprise as a uh, as an energy retailer called Indigo Power. So they're offering now to people outside the area that uh, you can purchase power um, from them. And uh, again, those profits come back into the community. So it's a, it's a really terrific example. Hepburn Wind is another one. So again, a community that got together um, and uh, generates their own energy now through uh, through wind turbines. And uh, I think what we're seeing is uh, that project in particular was um, was put together with some assistance from uh, the Victorian government and. Uh, that project has seen a 13, uh, 13-fold return on investment, um, as has some other projects uh, in Victoria. So this is proven. Uh, it's not just a, you know, a wild idea. And indeed, the policy that under, underpins all of this was put together through a co-design process that I led last year during the COVID lockdown and put out a discussion paper, Mark, and we had 100 submissions from around the nation. We had a 15-member expert panel of local people who know a lot about community energy and from that uh, we put together a piece of uh, legislation which I introduced to the House a couple of weeks ago that would set up the Australian Local Power Agency to enable these things to happen. And what chance do you think that you uh, have of getting that, that that would be private, private members' bill, right? So what chance do you think you have of having that negotiated? Or maybe another way of asking that is, I assume you've had uh, conversations with the government, with Energy Minister Angus Taylor, perhaps with the Prime Minister. Uh, Have you had any indications from them of any support? Yes, so I've been really encouraged. Um, Since I came to Parliament, I've been meeting with uh, Minister Taylor uh, and just letting him know about uh, my keen interest in this area and and the capacity that our local communities have to actually realise this. Uh, at first, he thought I was talking just about microgrids, but um, he understands now that it's bigger than that. This is about scaling up uh, the idea of community energy and and really seeing this as a broader regional development idea. So uh, I think he's, you know, I, I've felt encouraged by his interest. I've also taken it to the Prime Minister, who, again, uh, is, is supportive uh, theoretically supportive, and I asked a question of him in the House recently and and he gave me a very positive answer. So um, I've introduced it to the House. I've now referred it to the Energy and Environment Committee and I'll hear tomorrow uh, whether they will accept it for an inquiry and I'm really hopeful that they do. I want them to do that. I really think that this is uh, a piece of legislation that's rather novel and it's a way of looking at the regions in a way that hasn't been explored before by the federal government. You know, in many ways, I, I say to people, you know, we've had a gold boom, we've had a wool boom. Um, we're in the midst of a, a renewable energy boom, and we need to make sure that regional Australia truly gets the benefits, that it truly sees uh, procurement coming from the regions, that skills and jobs go to the regions, and that profits return to the regions as well. It's it's a really laudable aim. It strikes me that the energy market has been so much controlled by large corporations or before them even governments. Uh, we've seen some mm. of that privatised, of course, but we know it's big energy companies often internationally owned or with some international interests that are controlling our energy. And what you're talking about is not just a revolution in the technology but a revolution in the participation of that. I believe in Yakandanda I was reading... Um, I think it's Yakandanda Health has has made uh, significant savings. So I so I presume there are, you know, associated with all of these things when they're up and running. There are, there's a whole 
different mindset, a greater consciousness about energy production and consumption and the way in which that can be done more efficiently and done therefore more cheaply. And that, that's got to be a great attraction to, uh, to regional communities. Absolutely, Mark. So uh, Yak and Danta Health, as you mentioned, uh, is making millions of dollars in savings over a prolonged period of time. But um, energy is one of the greatest costs, of course, in uh, in any uh, in any business. There's uh, other examples too. So uh, there's a, a timber mill down in Benalla uh, called Ryan and McNulty, a very traditional family business uh, who are undertaking significant manufacturing of forest products. Now they've covered their roofs in uh, in solar panels. I was down there recently. They said, Helen, we'd like to buy buy, uh, buy more space elsewhere. And indeed, that's what could happen. If there were other buildings in town who didn't require all the energy they were generating uh, through their own solar panels, they could be selling it to Ryan McNulty and keeping that money in the town uh, and keeping the energy prices low for that other business. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about is, uh, is uh, region-wide or town-wide energy sharing, region-wide uh, profit sharing, uh, and uh, ultimately a more reliable um, a reliable energy supply. So it's a whole different way of thinking about it. It's about putting control of energy into the hands of local communities. It strikes me that this is the sort of thing the Nationals should be and should have been championing for some time. Uh, have you had any reaction from them? I mean, they're all about, they say, empowering regional communities, about the centrality of, uh, of uh, the bush to, to, you know, to Australia, the importance of it. Energy self-sufficiency and low energy costs, absolutely critical to uh, that sector uh, of Australia. What's, the, what's been the reaction from the Nats? Because they're not known for their energy innovation, let's be honest. No, and let's be honest about this, Mark, and I've got to say I'm pretty disappointed with the National Party. I would have thought this was a policy they could get right behind me on, and I've been encouraging them to do so. Uh, you know, right now the National Party are looking at energy in terms of coal and in terms of nuclear. Well, as you know, as I said to a National Party member recently, tell me how many communities will benefit from a nuclear power station <laughs> and, and how long will that take? Or be take? that enthusiastic about it. Well, exactly right. So, you know, again, this is a real opportunity for regional Australia that will slip through our fingers if we don't have the policy right to make sure that, as I said right at the beginning, that every electron that's being generated uh, is coming from regional Australia. So we need to make sure that that skills, jobs, profits uh, are equally uh, going back into regional Australia. So, you know, again, this is a really good faith piece of legislation. Uh, I think it's quite apolitical, really, and it's a way of just viewing the world in a whole different way, um, but in a way that other parts of the world are already doing. As I mentioned, Germany's certainly doing this, the Scandinavian countries, uh, in the UK, Scotland as well. So we're a bit bit behind in, uh, in, uh, in our policy framework over here, I reckon. It's really got to be the future anyway. I mean, it's where the sort of economic common sense is. If you think about the, you know, one of the major justifications for coal, particularly like a project like the Adani Carmichael Carmichael mine, uh, one of the arguments was always put forward is that there's, you know, whatever it was, 100 million people in India who were off the grid, who who didn't have access to electricity and that people who were opposing the mine we're opposing these people having electricity. Now, that's a that's a pretty powerful argument, assuming it's right. But going back to our point about electricity transmission, most of these people don't have electricity because they are so far away from the transmission grid and there's no economic case for putting them on it. No one's 
building the you know the transmission lines to do it. The answer for them is distributed energy. It is solar and wind and and battery storage to firm that up, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And and right now, Australian public policy around this is is really lacking. Um, in, and again, when I first started speaking to uh, government ministers around this, they said, well, Helen, there's, you know, we've already got, a, you know, some grant schemes available for people to apply for to set up a little microgrid. But, you know, really that's that's uh, missing Peace again mail. this mm. great big opportunity. And, and, you know, it sets communities up to compete against each other for, you know, an occasional grant that may come around once a year. So what I'm wanting to set in place is this third third agency. Right now we have ARENA, we have the CEFC, and I'm saying that we really need a trinity. We need a third agency. Uh, The Australian Local Power Agency is what I'm calling my suggestion, and that would be focusing entirely on uh, regional Australia and the generation of of energy in communities such as this. Uh, That would scale it up. Uh, It's pretty modest, actually. I've had this fully priced and costed through the Parliamentary Budget Office. It would cost uh, $50 million dollars over 10 years, and uh, then these projects would be off and running. Um, I think it'd be a great, uh, great investment. And as I said, Victorian state government have had some pilots and uh, a 13-fold uh, return on investment. So, you know, we, we could do something really spectacular in this country, uh, I think, with a very modest investment. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Uh, Helen, you were saying just before the break about uh, this um, Australian local power agency, the third agency, you say, and how it could uh, achieve a a 13 to 1 uh, return on investment, which is pretty impressive. I guess it tells, you know, once again, that story that we've seen in Australia for a long time now, which is that it's a, a lot of this is about the policy settings. The economics can work in this sector, in this in this part of the economy, not just at the local level, but uh, but in, at the national level in terms of our uh, investments, if we have the energy policy settings right. And at the moment, we've had that argument, you know, really pretty much since about 2008, nine. Um, we've had so much chopping and changing and so many false starts. Of course, we don't really have an energy policy functioning in this country at the moment. So um, what you're saying is, uh, you know, put the policy settings there, it actually makes sense and the investment will come. Mm, Very much so. And, again, um, this is based on some really good evidence. So, um, as I said, last year during the the COVID lockdown, uh, I undertook a a really significant review of the literature, a really significant 
um, piece of co-design work with communities. We ran 14 workshops. Uh, we did them all via Zoom around the nation. We received 100 submissions to our discussion paper and then we worked collectively uh, with, with experts from our communities and, and more broadly to battery experts from ANU and so on um, to come up with a, a solid policy proposition and, and a very strong recommendation about establishing this third agency, this local power agency. So, again, I would say, you know, we've spent so much time in, in climate wars in Australia that we, we haven't been able to move ahead with what's solid and what people actually want mm. and what we know can work. And, uh, again, uh, as I said, I, I think this is, uh, this is a really innovative piece of regional development. And, and in my conversations with the Prime Minister, I've said to him, you know, um, a lot of what's lacking in energy debate is, is a narrative for talking to regional Australia, and I'm giving you one right here. Mm. Uh, here's, here's a piece of policy, here's some legislation that would take you right to the heart of regional development and achieve extraordinary outcomes uh, in, in terms of energy generation, profit sharing and, uh, and lower costs for businesses and everyday people. He says he wants to get outside the bubble. This is policy outside the bubble. This is policy for Australians in all of those smaller centres all around the country. Uh, and it could be it could materially change their lives. I think you've cited in your um, in your policy paper the CSIRO prediction or projection of about a trillion dollars being spent uh, on energy between now and 2050 being invested uh, in mm. uh, in energy. So uh, it's big dollars that we're talking about here. They're big opportunities, and of course there are big policy questions about our emissions as well, which are significantly. Resolved if we if we go down this renewable energy path, uh, absolutely. And and again, we we only need to see that it's happening anyway. Um, and for me, I don't want to lose that opportunity for regional Australia. So, irrespective, really, of of uh, what happens next, we know that business is investing in renewables right around the nation. And as I said, right now it's sitting at twenty five percent, and we know it's going to get to eighty percent really soon. Uh, so we need to have policy that makes sure we bring people along in those communities and that they really see a benefit. And, you know, I, I sit in this uh, parliament, I've, sit, I've been here now for almost two years, and I constantly hear uh, the same old circular debates around what do we do to encourage people to move to the regions? How do we uh, increase the prosperity of regional Australians? How do we make sure that farming communities can survive through weather events like extended droughts? Well, you know, I'm saying to you right now, here is an opportunity that we could uh, really diversify the income of regional Australians. You know, as I said, 10% of all farmers in Germany um, own renewable energy plants there. So you know, imagine that in a drought where you've got a mm. steady income coming from your renewable energy plant. Well, what do you think the reluctance is? Is it is it just the sort of traditional Australian reluctance to change? Uh, we you know we, we we like to think of ourselves as being progressive and. And modern, but we, we also take a little while to make these changes. Or is it, in fact, even more kind of dogmatic than that? Do we have, as has been the case in this country for a long time, so much sort of political skin in this fight that it's very hard to get new ideas embraced? If you know, you mentioned before the Nats are pretty cool on this. Um, if if there's a, a view that this is kind of you know progressive policy, this is on you know this is kind of you know, left-wing climate change virtue signalling or whatever it is that, uh, you know, someone on the right might say, uh, is that the problem uh, or is it just, uh, is it, I mean, g give me a sense, for example, of what your electors in Indi think of these kinds of policies. 
So my electors uh, in Indi actually pushed me to this right at the very beginning of my candidacy for the 2019 election. When I asked them around uh, practical action on climate change, it was these ideas that they came to me with. Uh, because, you know, everyday people are way in front of the government on this, Mark. Um, so often the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what they said to me is that, okay, we've got these kind of projects running uh you know, in a micro way across the nation. There's, you know, there's around 100, I think 114 now community energy groups in Australia. Uh, well, 13 of them are in my electorate of Indi. So uh, these ideas are coming from the people and, and my, my job, I believe, as a representative is to advocate for these kinds of policies. Uh, so I think uh, part of this is that uh, perhaps there's a lack of imagination um, amongst uh, some of our our, uh, our ministers Never, around how surely. we can tackle this in a different way. Yes, you're probably right. Yeah, I think so. So, again, I, I do this in good faith and um, uh, with a, a positive attitude. I'm, I'm not kind of uh, at all interested in, in uh, wedging anybody on energy policy, far from it. Uh, what I'm trying to do really is to say, call it what you want, call it regional development, call it energy policy, whatever, um, but make sure that we do not lose what really is a massive opportunity for regional Australia. I think you're right, though, about the, um, the, the sort of, I don't know, the slowness of the political class, uh, particularly on the conservative side in this particular policy area, to to um, to act because if we look at the peak bodies, if we look at the NFF, the National Farmers Federation, um, you and I met recently at the National Press Club when uh, the uh, the small business organisation Cosboa, uh, the BCA, the Business Council of Australia, and the, and the NFF were all talking about these issues. Uh, and mm. I think there's at, at that level there's there's an understanding of how to make these you know make policies work, but. Um, in the political class, in the actual representative class, we, we see much more sort of chain dragging, if I can put it like that. Yeah, I, I think so. And um, look, I think the other thing here that uh, is is really interesting is that, that some bold ideas come from the crossbench uh, and they come through the private me- members' business section uh, of, of our parliamentary work. And uh, Again, I reckon, uh, Mark, you know, if, if I was the energy minister and someone came to me with a fully fleshed out comprehensive policy document, uh, a piece of legislation already drafted, a full parliamentary budget office uh, costing on it and no politics attached, I think I'd be looking at it pretty solidly. Especially if I was a regional MP myself. Yeah. As indeed <laughs> Angus Taylor is. Yeah, exactly. So as I said, I've had good conversations with Angus. I'd I'd just like to see him grasp this with two hands now and say, let's let's do it. Let's 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 try this. Well, you never uh, know. We've got the budget coming up. Maybe there is going to be uh, some sort of initiative in the budget. This is a government that is, I think it's fair to say, in the first quarter of 2021, under a degree of pressure. And uh, you know, I might I might ask you about that in just a moment. But mm. um, just before I do, can I can I just stay with? Uh, pivot from this a bit, but stay with uh, mm. the, the, the sort of politics generally. Do you see these these sorts of sort of democratic uh, participatory models we're talking about in energy? But is this a kind of a um, this is co- quite consistent, really, isn't it? With uh, with your candidacy and with rejuvenating democracy, you'd like to see these levels of participation in a range of policy areas, and that's that's what you see as the future. I take it. 
I, I very much do, uh, Mark. Now, I, I, I know that it takes a lot of effort to get um, citizens to truly participate in, in to the level that I have with this piece of policy. It takes a lot of dedication, a lot of commitment. Um, but in Indi, uh, we are very committed to this. We very much believe that there's so much, uh, there is so much knowledge in the community. There is so much capacity to, to do great work. And that if you have a representative in Parliament who will shepherd you through um, uh, to the halls of decision making, that you can actually achieve some really great outcomes. And um, I guess that's what I'm really seeking here is that. Uh, that, that's how we like to do business in India. We like to show up. We like to um, be informed. We like to do the work. You know, I have a, a several groups who work across my community, meeting with other people, bringing together evidence, bringing together fresh ideas, and um, collaboratively the, we then put them uh, uh, to the parliament. And that's what this is. And this has been a significant piece of work from India, that's for sure. But the Federal Integrity Commission bill is another one. Mm. Um, that's a key piece of work, an enormous amount of work, uh, that my electorate have called upon me to undertake. Uh, they're very serious about that. I mean, right throughout the, the hideous events of, of uh, 2020, starting with those dreadful bushfires and right through COVID, uh, my constituents would continue to say to me, um, Helen, look, uh, whatever you do, don't let go of fighting for the Integrity Commission, will you? So, you know, that's another one that, uh, that our, our people are very, very determined about. I'm glad to hear it. I think there's a lot of support for that around the country. Um, I mean, your candidacy itself uh, and Kathy McGowan's before you is is testament to how communities can be organised and and uh, and invited into the process, and how you can get quite a lot of engagement. and uh, And you know, Kathy McGowan broke the, the the major party hold on the seat of Indi, which was quite a significant thing, and that you've managed to continue that uh, succeeding her. So that's quite uh, quite significant. You've only been in the parliament, as you said yourself, uh, about two years. Um, it's a difficult policy area, this to discuss, but um, you must be wondering what sort of institution you've entered in 2021, given the stories that are circulating around in Parliament House at the moment. Yeah, Mark, um, I, I have to say that like um, people all over the nation and maybe especially women all over the nation, I've I have been, uh, well, to be honest, I've been pretty demoralised by what I've um, what I've seen and heard over this past month, and uh, and deeply shocked, actually. So again, I would say that um, as a member of parliament, I feel that it's it's very much my role to try to uh, find um, significant remedies to. To national issues and and of course what's happening in Parliament House is emblematic of a broader cultural malaise that we have in Australia around attitudes to women, violence against women, um, fundamental issues around women's prosperity in terms of uh, their their incomes, the issues that older women are having with homelessness, uh, the the lower wages women have, uh, lesser amounts of superannuation uh, at retirement, all of those issues that have been talked about nationally for some time. But uh, the allegations uh, uh, of of a serious crime such as rape happening um, in Parliament House just went beyond anything I thought was potentially going on here. So from my perspective, I, I see that my role now is is very much to ensure that that there was an independent inquiry and I've participated with my crossbench colleagues and indeed the opposition uh, in working with 
Simon Birmingham and Kate Jenkins to make sure we got uh, an, an independent inquiry into workplace um, culture and uh, practice here and 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 had input into the terms of reference and ongoing discussion with that. So I see that as my role in the parliament. But broader than that, I mentioned the Australian Federal Integrity Commission bill that I introduced uh, last year. But that bill had a sister bill, Mark, called the Commonwealth Parliamentary Standards Bill 2020. Uh, And that bill um, would seek to establish a code of conduct for MPs and seek to establish an independent commissioner for parliamentary standards. And I'm really... uh, I think really very sad that the government have chosen to uh, ignore those two bills, uh, to not allow me to debate those two bills, even if they were to allow me to debate the Commonwealth Parliamentary Standards Bill. We could make some, I think, legitimate and good faith progress in this place and and send a message to the nation that we were serious about uh, the behaviour of MPs and uh, the code of a code of conduct which is currently missing to actually establish one. I think that that could be something the government could do this week if they chose to. They could put that bill on the on the notice paper and we could debate it. So you know there's things that could be done here which currently they're not. Mm. Um, can I just ask you finally about uh, the the pandemic, uh, you mentioned it a couple of times, obviously last year was dominated by that. Victoria, your state was particularly badly hit by by the mm. circumstances. Um, nonetheless, overall, Australia has done extraordinarily well by any sort of international comparison. We really led the world, along with New Zealand and one or two others, really led the world in, in, in suppressing, even eliminating the virus effectively. Do you do you have the same confidence about the vaccine program? Because there's a bit of a narrative developing here, and we've got I think the US vaccinating three million people in a week. You know, US has been a disaster in terms of its pandemic response, but it is now under a new administration getting the vaccine program right. It seems, I think, virtually all adults who need to be um, uh, who can be vaccinated have been offered it in the UK now. Um, at least the first shot. Uh, so, you know, other countries are ripping ahead now with their vaccination program. I'm wondering about your electorate, but also whether you have any concerns about the, the, this sort of orderly to the point of being tardy program that we have for vaccinations in Australia. I guess firstly I would say that um, as an independent member of parliament, uh, as a member of the crossbench, uh, as someone with a, a background in public health, my very first uh, reaction to what is a member of parliament to do uh, in the face of a global pandemic, um, my first reaction and my consistent reaction has been to support the government in every way I can. To maintain confidence in the program. Absolutely. And uh, I was quite outspoken in parliament a few weeks ago when I had something to say about the member for Hughes and the misinformation that was coming uh, from his office in regard to uh, alternative treatments, COVID and indeed vaccination So I've been very strong in supporting the government uh, every step of the way to make sure that we have the best possible public health response that we can. Um, What I'm hearing now around uh, the vaccine rollout is some concern from uh, rural GPs. A few of them have been in touch with me recently. Uh, They have some concerns around uh, around the rollout, around uh, community expectations of where they can get vaccinated. I've been assured by by the Minister that rural and regional Australia will have universal and uh, equal access to vaccines as the metropolitan areas. And indeed, I know uh, some of our remote communities through the 
Aboriginal controlled health services are receiving their vaccines now. Um, so for me, it, it is a watching brief. I want this to succeed. I desperately want this to succeed. I, I want uh, as many Australians as we possibly can to be vaccinated. I know from our epidemiological um, experts that we need between 70 and 90%, the more the better. So I'll be doing everything I can to encourage people to be vaccinated, but I'll also be keeping a very close watch on the logistics uh, uh, in my patch in regional Australia to make sure that we have the vaccines when we need them and that our GPs have the resources that they need. Um, I mean, we're good at vaccinating in Australia, but there are a few other hurdles to jump with the COVID-19 vaccine that's a bit unusual for our uh, for our GP practices. So um, I'm relying on uh, getting good intel from them and I'm keeping a close watch on it. Helen Haynes, thanks so much for joining us on Democracy Sausage. It's uh, been terrific to have you on and to hear your perspective and congratulations on this community energy plan. I think it's uh, got great, uh, great potential. I hope the government is... Uh, taking it very seriously, and he's hoping that it might manifest itself in um, in further discussion of of uh, your bills and uh, and also in uh, in some policy commitment from the government. Thanks so much, Mark. And I'll be back with another democracy sausage before you know it. In the meantime, jump on our policy forum Facebook page or find us at Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's A P P S Policy Forum on Twitter. Uh, until next time, ciao for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.